You had the teachers unions lobbying the CDC to make it more difficult to reopen schools in person so that they could hold children's education hostage to secure multiple multi-billion dollar ransom payments from the taxpayer. At the Freedom Fest conference in Las Vegas, I sat down with Corey DeAngelis, the National Director of Research at the American Federation for Children and Executive Director of the Educational Freedom Institute. The school system is a massive monopoly that has no incentive to spend that money wisely. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Corey DeAngelis, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, and, and I should say, finally, you know, I've been watching your work for a while now. Yeah, and it's, uh, we've had a, a heck of a past couple of years with school choice victories in the polls, but then also uh, with, in state legislatures, we've been passing uh, enormous expansions of educational freedom. Uh, so it's a good time to be a school choice advocate. Absolutely. No, so I want to talk about all those things. Before we go there, right? In the last couple of years, the role of teachers' unions in the education system has been put front and center. I mean, in a way, I don't even think most people realized how big a role teachers' unions play. So I, I want to get you to start there, because this is something that's on everybody's mind. Yeah, the way that I would put it is that COVID didn't break the government school system. In a lot of ways, it was all already broken. And the past couple of years have simply shined a spotlight on the main problem with K-12 education in the country, which happens to be a massive, long-existing power imbalance between the government school monopoly and the teachers' unions and individual families. You had the teachers' unions lobbying the CDC to make it more difficult to reopen schools in person uh, so that they could hold children's education hostage to secure multiple multi-billion dollar ransom payments from the taxpayer. And it worked for them. They received about $190 billion in supposed COVID relief, which a lot of that money has been used for diversity, equity, inclusion officers. Some states they've used it for sports. It, hasn't, it was never really about safety and the needs of families. It was always more to do with politics and power dynamics. And uh, the, the good news is that families started to understand that this is a bunch of nonsense and there's no good reason to fund a failing closed government building when you can fund the student directly instead. And the other silver lining is when we had these, the Zoom learning or remote learning, I like to call it remotely learning because there was so much learning loss, hurt kids academically, mentally, and physically. Well, the thing is, families got to see what was going on in the classroom. And they started to see that there's another dimension of school quality that's really important to them, which is not captured in a standardized test score, but that is whether the school's curriculum is aligned with your values. So families who otherwise had their kids in good public schools, whether it was because of the state rating as an A or a B, or maybe their kids had good grades on their report cards. That's not the entire picture in the schools. And families have woken up, and they're not going back to sleep. They've, they've seen what is going on in the schools, and they're going to continue to push back against the status quo. So I'm optimistic going forward that this parent revolution isn't going away. Do you kind of have it in your mind, like the numbers, like where this money actually went? The, you know, you, you called it a ransom. Um, wh where did this money actually go? I mean, you had in some places in 2022, they were still fighting to keep the schools closed. Chicago teachers unions, they, they were going on strike at the beginning of 2022. And at that point, it was essentially like the hostage takers had received the ransom payments already, and they were trying to keep the hostages. And as far as where the money went, I mean, the Wall Street Journal 
most recently reported that about 93% of the funding from the federal level in COVID relief hadn't even been spent yet. And in some districts, like in Los Angeles public schools, they hadn't spent a single penny of the funding. They didn't need the money to reopen. I did a study with uh, Christos McCready's, who's affiliated with MIT, and we found that districts that had more money weren't more or less likely to reopen in person. If anything, some of our models found that the districts that had that went remote actually had more funding. Uh, so it wasn't a resource problem. It wasn't a safety problem. There was no relationship between COVID risk in the area and whether the schools reopened. The relationship was between how much influence the unions had and whether the schools, of course, they kept the schools closed. Meanwhile, the private schools were able to figure it out from the get-go and families were stuck scrambling while paying out of pocket to go to private school while still paying for the government school that was closed, which didn't make any sense to anybody. And we had studies showing that the schools could have reopened safely, but what was more compelling, I think, was the stories right in front of our eyes. We saw the grocery store workers doing it. Uh, we saw the teachers going into grocery stores, shopping for their families. They were totally fine. We had Chicago Teachers Union board member, for example, was in Puerto Rico vacationing in person while railing against going back to work in person. It was just a power grab. And again, it was a, a horrible situation for millions of kids across the country. But the benefit here is that they overplayed their hand and awakened a sleeping giant. Parents who want more of a say in their kids' education. Parents felt powerless in 2020, and they're going to fight to make sure they never feel powerless like that ever again. I heard tons of stories now, you know, about people basically saying, I, I, I think there's one person that did it this way, but they basically said, thank God for this remote learning because I actually figured out what they were teaching my kid. Before that, I didn't know. So there is that interesting silver lining, hey? Yeah, totally. And I think that's what mo has mobilized so many parents to push for things like transparency bills. We've seen anti-CRT bills uh, circulating as well. But well, although those might be a step in the right direction, obviously information is great and banning concepts that divide kids could be a step in the right direction as well, but we're seeing videos surface now with undercover journalism from accuracy and media in states that have CRT bans like Tennessee, uh, Idaho, and Iowa. The administrators in the public schools are admitting that they're still doing it anyway. They have a CRT ban, but they're saying, okay, well, we're just going to call it something else. We're going to call it social emotional learning, or maybe we'll just call it student mental health. And I think the better solution is what a lot of states are passing right now is school choice, what I've called funding students as opposed to systems, because that would give a competitive incentive for the government schools to focus on the basics, education as opposed to indoctrination, because you don't want to upset your customer base. And at the same time, that'll give families their kids' education dollars so that they could take to an education provider that aligns with their values, uh, whether that's a pub another public school, a private school, a charter school, or a home-based education option. That's the only way forward with freedom rather than force. And we've seen 19 states in 2021 enact or expand programs to fund students as opposed to systems. We've seen nationwide polling at an all-time high for school choice with now 72% of Americans supporting the funding following the child with super majority support among Republicans, Democrats, and independents. And then we just had a massive victory in Arizona. Every single family, regardless of income, is eligible for the school choice program. They get to take their kids' state-funded education dollars to any public, private, 
charter or home-based education option. That's the gold standard of school choice, and Arizona just cemented itself as the number one state for education freedom, and I hope others will follow. Okay, so I definitely want to dig into that in a sec. Before I go there, people talk a lot about you know teaching CRT and the grade school and say, well, we're not teaching, but the real issue isn't so much that that CRT concepts are being taught theoretically, it's that they're being applied in the curriculum, right? Okay. So can you speak to that briefly? So that's, this is another reason I think school choice is so important relative to transparency, which transparency bills are, are great. We should definitely push for that. But the school could not list CRT, but then still teach in a way that has a CRT lens. So you can have, you can have CRT lens through, uh, of te teaching for math, for example, and that won't be listed in the curriculum. So it's really up to the parents to make that decision for their kid. Um, so that's, that's another issue. They'll, they'll say, yeah, it's not in the curriculum, but even if it's not in the curriculum, they could still be doing things that parents aren't happy about. And a lot on the left will just, they, they do this gaslighting um, situation where they're, they'll say it's, it's not CRT, that's just a, something in law school that they're, it's a, a very you know, far out academic concept. But that's not what parents are upset about. They're, they're upset about segregating kids by race in public schools, which is totally backwards and uh, not something that we should be supporting. And um, whether you want to call it CRT or just discrimination or whatever you want to call it, families know what is not okay with their kids and their values. Another good reason for choice and letting families um, opt out of a situation that's not working for them, whatever you want to call it. So, yes, you had this big legislative victory in Arizona. You've been, of course, talking about it a lot. You have every right to be talking about it now. So take us behind the scenes a little bit. What does this bill actually do? And then I'm going to get you to tell me how easy it was to pass it. Yeah, so it's uh, something called the Universal Education Savings Account. I would say this is the purest form of funding students directly and empowering families. Funding students, not systems. Education savings accounts, one, you could either have the funding go to your government-run school. If you like your public school, you can keep your public school. But if not, that funding, about $7,000 per kid in Arizona, which is the, the uh, almost the entire state-level funding, would follow the child to an education savings account that's directed by the parents. You have to use the funding for education services, so that could be private school tuition and fees, that could be a micro-school, private tutoring, homeschooling curriculum, educational therapies for students with special needs, any approved education provider, the funding follows the, the student. And in Arizona, what's so monumental with this victory, I mean, this is the number one this is the biggest school choice victory in U.S. history. It's the first state that allows all families, regardless of background, regardless of income, to take their kids' education dollars to the education provider of their choosing. For a long time, it was, you know, we were, it was a debatable. What, what, what was the better state on school choice, Florida or Arizona? Well, Arizona just took the number one spot by far because every single family is eligible. And uh, the Arizona Republicans really showed us the way here. Every Democrat voted in opposition. And uh, you wanted to talk a little bit about how this happened. It's never easy, right? Um, it should be. It's a Republican Party platform issue. But remember, in Arizona, they have the slimmest of margins in each chamber. They have a one-seat majority in the House and the Senate. So what that meant was every single Republican had to show up because they didn't just require 51% of president in voting. You had to have 51% of the chamber to pass the bill. And every one of them showed up, voted for the party platform issue, more importantly, voted for parental rights and education, and they got it done. They expanded this program that was originally available to about 20% of the population 
to everybody, 100%, regardless of background or, or income. A little bit of the backstory, though, is that last year they tried something similar. They tried uh, to expand it from 20% to about 80%, it, 70 80%. It would have been massive expansion. It would have been great. It would have been their biggest victory uh, in Arizona history. The Senate passed it, 16 to 14, I believe, party line strictly. The House, they had three Republicans join the Democrats in killing it. Those same Republicans this year in 2022 saw, um, uh, started to listen to parents and voted with the party, with parents, in favor of the program, and it passed this year. And Ducey obviously signed it into law pretty recently. And um, one of the Republicans who voted in opposition originally last year actually co-sponsored the bill this year and on the floor had mentioned that she had heard uh, feedback from parents. So I think politicians are starting to realize that it is essentially becoming a form of political suicide, especially after the past two years, to come out against parental rights and education, especially as a Republican. You're just reminding me here, uh, you know, Glenn Youngkin's win, of course, right, in Virginia. Um, yeah, so uh, in a state that went 10 percentage points to Biden just the year before, Glenn Youngkin won on the issue of education by two percentage points, swinging the electorate 12 percentage points the other way. And Washington Post did some exit polling and asked, you know, what was the number one issue for you in, in the election? The number two issue out of all the issues they listed was education, second to only jobs and the economy. So for education to be a deciding factor in the election, that was huge. And Yunkin won with those education voters by six percentage points. So I think this is a blueprint for success for Republicans. If they want to lean into education, I think they're starting to realize that coming out against parental rights again, like Terry McAuliffe did when he said, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. And I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually you take books out and make their own decision. You vetoed it. So, to yeah, I parents, you stopped the bill that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. That's not a popular message. And so if you can lean into supporting parental rights, the people who believe that your kids and the money meant for educating them belong to the government schools, they're going to lose. And Terry McAuliffe didn't backpedal. He, he quadrupled down on that anti-parent rhetoric and even had Randy Weingarten, the least liked union president at the time, in my opinion, stump for him the night before the election. And even on CNN, one of the Virginia moms said that that was the nail in the coffin moment for her. How did Terry McAuliffe handle the education part of everything? Well, parents were very angry during school closures at the teachers' unions and, um, for me, the nail in the coffin was on his last day of campaigning. He brought the head of the teachers union to his rally and she spoke. We've seen some other parent uprising and how parents could band together and, and change things, not just with the school choice victories, not just with elections like Terry McAuliffe going down, but with the National School Boards Association, who colluded with the Biden administration, sending a letter to the Justice Department, essentially implying that some parents should be investigated for domestic terrorism, for showing up at school board meetings, pushing back against CRT and other uh, political indoctrination that was happening in the classroom. Well, since that happened in the past six or so, seven or so months, 26 state level school board associations have pulled their membership from the National School Boards Association. So we might as well rename them at this point to the Regional School Boards Association because uh, they don't even have the majority of the states anymore. And that just goes to show you that parents have real power. In, for far too long in K-12 education, the only special interest group has been the teachers unions. 
But now, there's a new special interest group in town. Parents who want more of a say in their kids' education, and they aren't going away anytime soon. And I'm optimistic they're going to win in the long run because they're never going to forget what happened. They're never going to forget Randy Weingarten, the teachers' unions, pushing to keep schools closed and hurt, hurting their kids. And they're no, never going to forget the political stuff that was tied to the reopening of schools, such as you had... Uh, the Los Angeles Teachers Union in the report on safely reopening schools, for example, they were calling for a wealth tax, Medicare for all, and all this other police-free schools. It had nothing to do with safety. It was always about flexing their political muscles and getting whatever they want. Now people are starting to realize that Randy Weingarten's union gives almost all of their campaign contributions to Democrats. 99.99% of the American Federation of Teachers campaign contributions so far in 2022 have gone to Democrats as opposed to Republicans. These are hyper-partisan political organizations that are more about politics and politicization in the classroom than they are about educating kids. They're more about uh, the adults in the system as well than they ever have been about children and families are waking up and they're going to win because parents care about their kids more than anybody else and they're going to fight for the right to educate their kids as they see fit harder than any teachers union will ever fight to take that right away from them. Well, you know, I heard someone say, you know, it's when the people that just generally like to be left alone get activated, that's when, uh, you know, a significant movement begins, and it sounds like this is this is exactly what's happened, as you're describing. I wanted to get you to quantify for me a little bit. You know, you said there's this been this cost to education, and it's kind of obvious, but do you have numbers yep. on this, of that cost of virtual education? And then, of course, there was a lot of kids that just simply weren't attending, you know, virtually or any other way. Yep, so um, well, there's been tons of studies coming out, finding months and months of learning loss, uh, associated with the school closures. We've had studies come out in JAMA, one of the top medical journals, finding that districts that went remote or they kept schools closed. Kids had larger reports of mental health issues, all else equal after including controls for uh, background uh, characteristics in the area. So it's pretty clear that this hurt kid kids academically and mentally. We've even seen reports over the lockdown period of kids childhood obesity rising as well. So there's a lot of costs that were associated with these closures that no one wanted to focus on. They only looked at one side of the equation. They looked at, well, there's the, there's a potential risk of catching COVID, and that, that was a non-zero cost. But there were all these other costs, academic losses, mental health issues, teenage suicide spiked over the pandemic period as well. No one considered those things. And the people who did consider those things were called anti-science, they were called conspiracy theorists, and now we're seeing those same people were right all along. And as, term, and as far as cost of the current government school system, I already told you they, they dumped $190 billion into this COVID relief. Even before the pandemic period, in 2019, the U.S. Census Bureau reported that the government school spent about fifteen or $16,000 per student per year. It's probably about Nineteen or twenty thousand dollars. The latest California budget, for example, that they just came out with is tw about twenty-three thousand dollars per student. A massive increase in spending in the government schools. Nationwide, average private school tuition is only about eleven or twelve thousand dollars per student. Why not give that money to the families and let them choose an opportunity that works best for their kid? And the, num the, the just the sheer amount of funding that has gone into the system has just, since 1970, for example, we've increased per pupil education expenditures by about 152% after adjusting for inflation. Meanwhile, teacher salaries have only increased by about 8% nationwide.
So we see all this massive increase in funding. It's not making its way to the teachers of the classroom. And the reality is it's because the, the school system is a massive monopoly that has no incentive to spend that money wisely. And we've actually found, I've seen five studies now that I've summarized in a blog at the Washington Examiner called School Choice Benefits Teachers Too. All five of those studies have found statistically significant positive effects of private and charter school competition on teacher salaries in the public schools too. So competition is good for the market for goods and services, it's great for customers obviously, but it's also good for employees uh, competition in the labor market. So school choice can benefit families, teachers, and uh, the less rest of the populace by having a better educated citizenry. So one of the criticisms I've heard of the uh, Arizona situation, of course I've heard of many great things about it, but one of them is, is that there are still mechanisms by which the government can essentially control that money by saying, you, to accredit you, for example, you have to do certain things. Like, for example, it could be, right, something like you have to have some kind of CRT praxis in your system to get access to this money. How does that work? Yeah, that's not included in the Arizona bill. So we should look out for any regulations in the future. We should look out whenever a bill is introduced what kind of strings might be attached to the money. But the Arizona bill is as hands-off as it can be. You basically have to spend it on education. You can't go take the education savings account money and go to your favorite restaurant and just go splurge or buy a car or a big screen TV. But, but here, here's what I mean, right? Like, for example, you mentioned, I, I believe that, of course, it has to be an accredited institution, right? So in order to be accredited, maybe you need to teach things a certain way, for example. Right, so maybe at the school level, right, it could be influenced. How do you deal with that, I guess, is my yeah. question. Yeah. So we should push back against the uh, accreditation system as well, but that's something that exists without school choice programs, right? Private schools already have accreditation mechanisms. Arizona is great because it doesn't have a testing uh, requirement either, and it doesn't give the admissions processes standards over to the state. Schools can still keep their admissions processes, and they, it's all voluntary. They can choose whether to, uh, uh, participate in the program or not each and every year. Each individual family can make that cost-benefit decision for their own family as well. And I would say we got to be careful about making perfect the enemy of the good because, look, the current situation is that 90% or so of kids are stuck in government-run schools where that money is going directly to a government-controlled, government-operated institution, and the families don't have a choice whether to send it here or send it there. So I'd rather take the incremental win as a step in the right direction, even if it's not utopia. But at the same time, we don't have to just fight on one front in this war, right? School choice can be one way to, to win this battle, but also we should fight against the accreditation system. We should fight for changing the teacher pipeline in the public and private schools. So there's a lot of different things we can be doing. In addition to these transparency bills in the public schools, if you want to uh, change the curriculum standards in the public schools as well to have a more conservative um, uh, outlook in the public schools, we should do all of those things and we shouldn't see them as uh, in necessarily in competition with one another. You know, that's actually an interesting point. You know, a number of people who are in the system have told me that teacher education and colleges kind of, you know, near ubiquitously is very ideological, very sort of infused with woke or CRT type principles. So, do, you, do you know about this How, or what's the reality over there? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the teacher pipeline through the education schools, that's another problem that, that has to be dealt with, right, as well. Um, and there's a, a pretty clear ideology that's that's run uh, through them. But but look, at the, the argument that I hear from some people is that school choice could lead to control of the private institutions. As I said, my argument is that 
we're taking an incremental win as a step in the right direction. We have kids that are stuck in already government-controlled schools. It's all voluntary. The schools don't have to participate. The, the individual families don't have to participate. They can choose to opt in and out every single year. And the other thing that we should also think about is if we don't have school choice and we keep the status quo, the government can regulate private education without school choice programs. And you, so you have a current system where nine out of 10 kids are in a government controlled system, probably be, being indoctrinated, and at least more likely to be so, to love big government socialism. And they might turn out later on to vote to regulate private and home education without school choice programs. So we have to be vigilant every step of the way and uh, take the wins when we can get them. No, you've been a big advocate of this idea that anyone should be able to get access to private school, for example. So how do you see that being done? Because they tend to be a bit more expensive than the, you know, even in California where you, it's 23000 That's actually quite a bit, right? But it's still probably less than a lot of private schools. Yeah, so I would say there's a wide range of the tuition levels for private schools. Like, for example, in the U.S., the government schools spend over $15,000, $16,000 per kid. Average private school tuition in the U.S. is eleven dollars to $12,000 per student. California just passed a budget that's about $23,000 per student in the government schools, whereas the private school tuition, I want to say, is far less than that. It's probably like fifteen dollars or $16,000 per student. So you might not be able to afford the, the top-notch private schools, but you still have more options than you had before. And let's say it's a $15,000 uh, savings account amount. You're still better off than you were towards reaching that seventeen or eighteen thousand uh, dollar tuition. So you could fund it privately. Some schools offer discounts for lower income families, so they have a, a different sliding scale tuition level. And I would say, again, this is a an incremental win, and no one even on the left would say we should oppose Pell grants, for example, just because they don't cover the full cost of attending Harvard. Sure. And a, a lot of the times, like the union groups will say oh, the $7,000 in Arizona, that's not enough to cover the top end, you know, $15,000 school in the state. And then I'll come back and say, okay, well, the government schools in Arizona spend about $14,000, $15,000 per kid. You want to allow the full amount of funding to follow the child? And then they'll just say, they either won't respond, they'll, they'll switch to something else, or they'll say, well, then, then you're stealing money from the public schools. And I'm like, well, that was your real argument, wasn't it? It had never had anything to do about with, with, with access to um, more private school options. Because if it was, they'd support having the full funding following the child. So do you think the public school system should be defunded in some ways? I don't think we should fund systems at all. I think we should fund the individual students. And if you want to take your kid to the public school, I think that option should still be on the table. I'm not you know, sitting here called to abolish the school system altogether. We have a lot of people using the public school system. and. If it organically happens to be that when every single family has a choice that over time um, there will be fewer public schools, uh, that I don't want to control what that looks like. I want the market to figure it out. I believe that private education would have a, an advantage with fewer regulations and more autonomy and uh, just more incentives to, to do the right thing. But at the same time, we've seen that the public schools get better in response to competition with, from school choice. 25 of 28 studies that exist on the topic find statistically significant positive effects of private school choice competition on the outcomes 
of the students in the public schools. School choice is a rising tide that lifts all boats, just like in any other industry. And, it, and it's kind of obvious, right? Because as soon as you realize that, hey, there's someone else who might get the students, there's some people that even don't realize that these schools get their budgets based on how many students are enrolled, right? And what's interesting is this, with this argument from the other side saying this will defund or steal money from the public schools. My first response is the money doesn't belong to the government schools in the first place. It doesn't belong to the private schools either. It belongs to the families. No one would say that allowing families to choose their grocery store, for example, stole money from Walmart. It wouldn't make any sense for anybody to say that. So it similarly doesn't make any sense for people to say that school choice or having families choose their school steals money from the public school. It wasn't their money to begin with. It's the family's money. And they can still choose the public school. Why do you think that giving families an option is going to defund your institution? If you're doing a good job, you should be confident in your product. And you wouldn't have anything to worry about. They understand, though, that a lot of families aren't happy with what they're getting. And that's a good argument for school choice, not one against it. But another little wrinkle to that narrative from the other side is that like I said, in Arizona, this massive victory, it's only the state level funding. The public schools keep all the local and federal dollars. They keep about half. Just imagine if you stopped shopping at Walmart for whatever reason, you started shopping at Trader Joe's and Walmart got to keep half of your grocery bill or funding in perpetuity. It'd be a good deal for Walmart. I'd argue that this Arizona program and other school choice programs are good deals for the public schools as well. They mathematically must end up with higher per pupil revenues and expenditures because they keep thousands of dollars for students who are no longer there. That's a good deal. It's a win-win situation, and it gives families a choice at the same time. So the American Federation for Children has an action fund. Yep. You know, so this is this is your organization, of course. So so tell me about what, what you do with that and how you in, you incentivize using that. Yeah, so at the American Federation for Children, we have C3, C4, and PAC capabilities as well. So what's great is we uh, can um, become involved in local elections. So for example, in Arizona, part of the story is that they have slimmest of margins with Republicans and they were able to get it done. Yet in Oklahoma this year and in, in Utah as well, they weren't able to get the same thing done even though Oklahoma, their House of Representatives, for example, has 80% or so Republicans. If Arizona could do it, why couldn't they do it? The thing is in deeper red states, you have the teachers unions playing in Republican primaries. So they'll cherry pick uh, a candidate that's a Republican on everything else except for their party platform issue of school choice and they'll get them to kill the bill, typically in one chamber. We, see, we saw this play out in Texas, for example. In Texas, we have the votes in the Senate. Uh, we had them in 2017. The, in Texas, even before all this COVID stuff, they passed the universal education savings account through their Senate pretty dang easily. Only two Republicans uh, sided with the Democrats in voting against it, but they still had uh, uh, enough votes to do so. And it didn't even get a vote in the House, though, in 2017. But things are different now. And I think the political winds have changed. And nationally, if Texas were to kill a school choice bill like they did in 2017 in the House, it would turn into a national embarrassment for Republicans in that state. But I think there's, they've changed their mind. Like in, in Arizona, for example, those three Republicans who voted against it last year voted for the school choice bill this year to have the biggest school choice victory in U.S. history. And the AFC Action Fund, we... Um, be, are involved in, in elections in, in our primary races, for example, so far this year. About 75% of candidates who were supported by the American Federation for Children Action Fund and its affiliates were successful in their primaries or advanced to runoffs. So school choice is becoming more of a political litmus test for Republican candidates in particular. I mean, just think about Iowa, for example. Governor Reynolds is a staunch supporter of educational freedom. She had an education savings account bill 
uh, kind of like Arizona's, not as expansive, but it was still a, would have been a good win. They passed it through the Senate. Only one Republican voted with the Democrats. Uh, but in the House, where they have a 60% Republican House, they could not get the votes to pass the ESA that was championed by the governor. And she went out and endorsed nine candidates in the Republican primaries with most of those races having a clear dividing line of school choice being the main issue that uh, divided the candidates. Eight of those nine candidates endorsed by Reynolds won, or supported by Reynolds won their primaries. And so I think we might have a very good shot in Iowa of having a big victory next year as well. So the political winds are changing. Uh, politicians are starting to realize that coming out against parental rights in education can be politically detrimental for them. And uh, we're seeing that in the primaries right now. It'll be interesting to see how things go in the general election in November as well. On that, uh, the, the Randy Weingarten's union just put out a, they did some internal polling, likely voters in battleground states like Pennsylvania and some of the other states. It was, con it was conducted for the American Federation of Teachers, Randy Weingarten's union, and they found that Republicans were winning on education with these likely voters in battleground states, which is, a lot of people thought that when that happened in Virginia with Glenn Youngkin that it was a one-off. It was just because of the school closures. It was so, everything was so recent. But now here we are several months later. I mean, it's, it's July 2022. The schools have been open for quite a while now. And you, you have a Repu Republicans winning on the issue of education. And they also asked in that same poll for the union who the voters thought was more responsible for overly politicizing education. They were saying that the Democrats were more likely to politicize education right now by about five or six percentage points. So there's a huge difference there. It's completely counter to Randy Weingarten's narrative that it's it's all the Republicans' fault. Those voters are saying something else. So this is actually funny. I was going to ask you about this because I saw that Randy Weingarten had tweeted that that you know this whole issue has become too politicized, and I thought. I think I agree with her. This is one of the things I agree with her on, but but clearly that's that, that's not what she meant. Yeah, it's like um, I think she was calling herself out. Have you seen that meme where the guy has the hot dog suit? And we're like, we're all trying to find the guy who did this. I mean, Randy Weingarten's union is overly politicized. 99.99% of her campaign contributions have gone to Democrats as opposed to Republicans so far in 2022. Her unions made the whole pan pandemic politicized by fighting to keep the schools closed and including a bunch of nonsense uh, like like Medicare for all and police-free schools and a wealth tax in order to reopen schools in Los Angeles, which is, which is an affiliate of Randy Weingarten's union. You had the Chicago Teachers Union tweet out that reopening schools, this is another affiliate of Randy Weingarten's in Chicago, that the push to reopen schools is rooted in racism, sexism, and misogyny. They, they deleted the tweet a little later after I responded with a headline from CNN that said that school closures had disproportionately hurt uh, non-white students and um, lower income students. So it was completely opposite of what they were trying to claim, but you could see how they were just trying to keep the schools closed as long as possible, keep the gravy train going, and no other industry did this. Because in every other industry, if the grocery store is closed, you could take your money elsewhere. If your private school is closed, you could take your money elsewhere. The public schools didn't have that incentive. They had an incentive to uh, keep their benefits the same, not have to go into work, not have to commute, not have to provide the in-person services for children, but they kept the salaries, but then it was worse than that because they knew that they could leverage that for a bunch of little political goodies and more money, which is, the, it's just totally backwards, the set of incentives that are baked into the school system. I don't blame the people in the system. I blame the system itself. 
and families are figuring that out too. That's why we're seeing so much success with school choice and other uh, fronts uh, when it comes to education and more uh, freedom. Well, Corey DeAngelis, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you so much again for having me. Thank you all for joining Corey DeAngelis and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. We're recording here at Freedom Fest. I'm your host, Yanya Kellick.